listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, you're listening to Animal Party with your host, Deb Wolf, on Pet Life Radio. And once again, I've got back one of my favorite guests ever, Dr. Stanley Corin from UBC, professor of psychology, author of many, many, many dog books, including The Intelligence of Dogs, but many others as well. And Dr. Stan Corin, he's in a position to talk about pets and people and mental illness and how our minds work and autism and all these sorts of topics like nobody else because he understands human psychology and dogs. So welcome to the show, Dr. Corin. Glad to be here, Deb. I'm hoping to just put some clarity on things because I know there's a lot of garbage out there on the Internet and I just want people to understand the truth about things. So I saw some clips that you sent me of kids and with autism, kids diagnosed with autism, enjoying therapy with dogs and actually in a facility where the dogs live with the kids and puppies. And it was just beautiful to watch. And we'll put a clip up of it on uh, Pet Life Radio for those of you who want to check it out. It was just brought tears. Why does that work? What's the combination? What's the magic combination here when you have a kid with autism and a dog? Well, autism, one of the major symptoms of autism, one of the major problems with autism is, uh, is uh, communication difficulty. Kids don't communicate. Uh, they... Um, uh, sort of withdraw into themselves, and uh, because of that, it makes it difficult for them to learn. It makes it difficult for them to become uh, social. And the value of a dog is that, first of all, the child feels in control. They are immediately perceived of as the boss by themselves, and the dogs are not threatening. You know, a dog is not going to tell you no. That's not the way to say it. The dog is not going to tell you I want you to do this. And so the child is really in a world where they have uh, the sense of control. And control is, 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 is the essence of being normal. You know, if you feel that you can control your life and what's going on in your life, then, in fact, you don't get depressed, you don't get aggressive, and you pay more attention because if you're in control, then you have to know what's going on around you. So that's part of the reason. The other reason simply has to do with affection. That dog is there for you, giving you affection, and somebody who you can fawn over and, and put you and that kind of a thing. And so if you need a dose of tender, loving care at this moment in time, well, guess what? You don't have to, you know, find the teacher or the therapist or the parent or whatever else. You've got your dog right there. And that's true for healthy kids, too. You don't have to have, I mean, even puberty, even all the things kids go through, divorce, a lot of kids would benefit from that constant cuddle creature in the house. That's right. And if you ask kids you know, uh, to describe their family, you know, their favorite people in their family. This is normal kids. They'll very often put the dog ahead of their brothers and sisters. If you ask them what they do with their dogs, you know, you find out that dogs, in fact, uh, are the ones that the kids tell their secrets to and uh, talk to when they feel that the world is being unfair in some way. 
As a dog trainer, I have a question about this whole thing and how it works from the dog training point of view. It would be difficult for me, it has been difficult for me, to get a dog to bond with a special needs kid sometimes. Sometimes everybody else in the family is more emotionally connected and, and more easily affectionate. And it's very hard to get the dog to go to the one person that's least like that, especially puppy. And so I know some dogs must be sympathetic, empathetic, must actually go to that person particularly as a helper kind of a move. But some dogs and puppies would not. They would just go to the most fun person, the most affectionate, loving, loud, interactive person, which usually probably wouldn't be the autistic kid in a family where there's many kids. So how do you deal with that? Well, it, it depends on what the psychological problem is that the okay. special needs kid has. And, uh, for example, we know that kids with, um, you know, learning disabilities, that kind of thing, in fact, can bond with dogs uh, very, very well. And uh, one of the reasons uh, some people have argued is because the dog and the child are sort of thinking at the same level. That means to say they're, they're not overanalyzing things and they're, they're much more involved with sort of the emotional content and what is what is going on at this particular moment in time rather than long-term implications and that sort of thing. But sometimes when there's difficulty, if there's a, if, if there's a family with, the, you know, normal kids and special needs kids, sometimes the special needs kids don't get a chance to bond with the dog because the normal kids have taken over. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I've had to recommend things like only... You know, the, the one boy who's getting least contact from the dog that they actually got the dog for, I'll say, well, get him to do the feeding, get him to do the walks, get him. So you make him matter because yeah. he's the one the dog needs, right? And I know that people have this idea that dogs give unconditional love. I don't buy that. I think it's really conditional. You can walk into a house and know immediately who's taking care of the dog by the way the dog listens to that person and cuddles that person and looks at that person and, and stands between you and that person. I mean, there's so many things they show you. They right away say, hey, this is the person who's in charge of me right here, right here, right here. You know, and it can be a kid. It's going to be that kid, right? That's what you have to do. But you also have to violate some of the rules. For example, you know, if you have a dog which is serving a therapeutic function, you know, that dog effectively has to be with the, the target person virtually 24-7. So, you know, that dog sleeps in the room, and if, you know, even if it wants to sleep on the bed, it doesn't make any difference. That dog is with that person all of the time. So it's not the case that, you know, you know Freddie is the, is the kid with problems, and Eddie is the kid without any problems. So Eddie does not get to walk the dog. Freddie walks the dog. Now, Eddie can go with him, but, uh, you know... Freddie has to be there. It's not, well, you know, Freddie doesn't walk so well and you're not going to get very far and the dog's not going to get a whole lot of exercise. That doesn't make any difference. The purpose there is not for the, for the dog to get exercise. The purpose there is for, to continue the bonding. I would worry in that case, and I, I don't have the situation at home, so I have no idea, but I would worry that the other children would come to resent Freddie. You no, know, he gets no, the dog. He gets all the special attention. How come we don't each get a dog of our own? How you know what I mean? Like, how do you diffuse that? Well, I mean, there are several ways to, to handle that. It's that, you know, if Freddie's going to walk the dog, then Eddie has to go with him, and Eddie gets to hold the leash some of the time, and, and that sort of thing. So you can sort of share in that way. But the idea is that the target individual, the patient, if you will, has to be there all of the time. So if the mm -hmm. other kids are going to play with the dog, for example, 
the target person has to be there also. That's one of the ways in which you can handle that. I mean, of course, an alternate way is to get two dogs, but uh, that gets to be much more of a hassle. So, I have a question about autism. Is it diagnosed by symptom, or is it diagnosed by some pointing, you know, blood cause or something diagnosable in a test? No, it's a behavioral syndrome. In fact, actually, it's a whole range of diseases. So we refer to them as the autistic spectrum diseases. And they can run from fairly mild things like social withdrawal to very major things where the child simply doesn't speak. It's not that they don't have the ability to speak. It's just they don't. How often do you think, is it ADHD and autism, are they misdiagnosed in kids that really maybe present that way, but there's some other cause? I mean, misdiagnosis is always a possibility. Uh, you have to recognize that in psychology, it's very often the case that you are not dealing with a simple problem, you know, with one thing. And the individual can be suffering from several different problems. So, for example, uh, let's sort of step away from autism for a second, but, you know, you can have a schizotypal thing, you know, some sort of fracturing of your of your personality, and at the same time be depressed. So depending upon which of those symptoms, which symptoms complex are most predominant, then the individual might be diagnosed as having, you know, some kind of personality disorder or being depressed. So is it a misdiagnosis or is it a missed diagnosis? So you've got one. Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, well, we have to take a break. We're going to be back in just a minute with the... Dr. Stan Korn on Animal Party Pet Life Radio and me, Deb Wolf. And I'm going to ask you when we get back about how to pick a puppy. If you've decided you've got a special needs kid that would benefit from a dog and you go to look at a litter, I just had this happen recently, and there were two puppies they were really honing in on, very different personalities. And, well, we'll find out from Dr. Korn how you know which puppy to pick. Come back to Animal Party in a minute. Life Radio, the number one pet radio network on the planet, joins forces with iHeartRadio to put the power of your pets in your pocket. Awesome. Download the iHeartRadio app and rock Pet Life Radio on your phone, on your tablet, on your Xbox, in your car. Pet talk, pet tunes, and fun pet times. Pet Life Radio and iHeartRadio. Positively possum. It's dinner time in America where more pet parents trust PetSmart for natural and expert-recommended foods than any place else. And now, we've added more than 100 new varieties to our already wide selection of your favorite brands, like Simply Nourish, Authority, Wellness, Science Diet, and more. Do what's best for your pet. At PetSmart, happiness in store. Go to PetSmartDeal.com to find out this week's coupon code and save up to 30% on food, treats, toys, and more. And get free shipping on orders of $49. Go to PetSmartDeal.com. P-E-T-S-M-A-R-T-D-E-A-L.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Hello, 
You're listening to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio with Deb Wolf, your host as always, and I'm partying it up with six standard poodle puppies that were born May 18th. They're gorgeous. If you want to see them, you just go to Facebook Camp Good Dog, and there they are. I took them in the pool with my kids to see who the swimmers were. So there's six puppies. They're all supposed to be water dogs. But Dr. Corn, they all didn't like the water equally. That's for sure. <laughs> right? There was a couple that clung to my kids or tried to get back out of the pool. And then there were a couple that tried to avoid us so they could swim longer. Tried to do lengths, you know, completely independent. One tried to jump back in after I took it out. So I think um, there is something. They're, they, you know, they're a lot alike. They've got the same mother, same father. A lot, a lot alike. Same puppy rearing so far. And yet, each pup is different, right? So, how do you choose a pup when you have maybe a kid with Asperger's or autism or some reason you think a dog will bring this kid out more and socialize more and be maybe safer and a happier kid? Which puppy do you pick? Do you pick the, the timid, calm one? Do you pick the wild one? Do you go with what I normally recommend men for most families, which is something in the middle? What do you do? Okay, well... There are several rules of thumb. The first thing is when you're picking the breed. Generally speaking, the smaller, less active dog is going to be the better choice when you're looking at a therapeutic dog. It's just, if the dog is active, then it's more likely to get into situations which are problematic and can set things back. And if the dog is smaller, then it's easier to control, especially for individuals who might have difficulty sorting alternatives or making split-second decisions and that kind of thing. But just so people don't misunderstand, you're not recommending four-pound teacup chihuahuas as service dogs, right? Where you step on it and it's broke its hip. I mean, no, no, the dog has to be substantial enough so okay, that it's relatively okay. unbreakable, but... Unbreakable! Because <laughs> accidents happen, especially with special needs kids, right? Well, I mean, you know, I'll give you an example. For example, a beagle can be a very good therapy dog for individuals who are dealing with emotional problems. It's not a big dog, and you can control their activity level. But it's but so it, but forgiving. It, it doesn't it, hold a grudge, ever. A beagle is like, today is a new day. What are we doing today? But they also have solid bone structure, which means right. that if the kid is, is roughhousing with the dog, the dog is not going to break a leg, you know, whereas a papillon might. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you want the dog to be substantial enough so that you don't have to worry about it being injured. But when I say smaller... So most of the time, it's going to be a a lab-sized dog, 60-pounder. But you're saying, rather than pick the puppy that's going to be 90, pick the puppy that's going to be 60. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? But, but for example, (laughs) you know, in dealing with individuals who have visual problems, uh, so the guide dogs, when they started to shift away from German Shepherds, which they did for two reasons, because the... North American German Shepherds have a number of health problems, especially having to do with that inclined back, uh, and also because they are viewed as being threatening. So, you know, nobody wants... Which is incorrect, right? We found out years ago that they're genetically connected to the herders, not the attackers, but okay, whatever. People are threatened. I get it. But because because those are the the, the dogs which look like the police dogs, which you see on century duty and that kind of thing, it's just public perception in this Mm -hmm. case. But anyway, so they shifted to the retrievers. They shifted to the labs and to the goldens. 
But then they began to find that, I mean, they made wonderful guide dogs, but they began to find that, in fact, sometimes, especially if there are physical limitations in addition, uh, these dogs are just too big. I mean, you know, you have a, a, a 90-pound golden, you know, it spins around to go, you know, check something out, and it hit, hits you, and you fall down. I mean, it's just the way it happens. And the tail, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so they have been breeding those dogs down for use as guide dogs. So, in fact, you know, the Goldens and the Labs, which you now often see it's in guide dogs or the Golden Lab mixes, you know, are much smaller than you tend to see in the general sporting population. So we're looking at, you know, 21, 22-inch dogs at the shoulder. Wow, um, that is small. That's more like a medium poodle rather than a standard. That's really quite petite. No, it's, it's not. I mean, Labs were originally designed to be pocket retrievers. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it, it, you know, the dog which you keep in your house. Oh, hang on a second. What is that? Oh, my. You know what I want to ask you, because I'm trying to identify your dog from the barking. Is it a young puppy of some kind of spaniel breed? It is a three-year-old uh, Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Oh, I got the age wrong, and I said it was a lonely puppy. That's what I thought. It sounded like it was giving me, don't leave me, don't leave me. <laughs> he, is, he is very well bonded to me, uh, but oh, no. uh, we, have, we have people, as I said, fussing with the house, and that's what he got tangled in. He got tangled in some of the wire, which was uh, electrical wire, which was in a corner, uh, <laughs> when I had to sort of stop and untangle <laughs> People really ought to know that even an older dog, even a trained dog, if you're doing work to your house, if things change, if people are visiting, there can be dangers you don't normally anticipate the dog can get into. So you really got to be around or take your dog with you or kennel them up safe because they might leave the door open. The cat might get out. They might decide they're going to do a tune-up on their car and leave a puddle of antifreeze and kill your pets. You know, you just don't know what they're going to pull. So they're not pet people. They might not think about it. So you got to be careful when you've got different things happening. And I just heard on the news, Dr. Korn, it was so sad. 18 children have died already in closed cars this year in the uh, United States. 18. And the usual number's around 40. So there's going to be more. And there was a break-in in Texas where these people in a shopping mall literally broke out this boy and girl babies from the back of a car while the mom was having a haircut just yesterday. People, do not leave your animals in the cars. Don't do it. Any animal, any kid, when it's hot, just don't do it. Take them with you. Okay, so Dr. Gorin, you are explaining things to us about size of dogs. And so bigger isn't always better. Smaller isn't always better, which I know people are always looking for the tiniest, tiniest puppies nowadays. And sometimes that can come with some health problems. You know, if you pick a real tiny puppy in a litter that's noticeably half the size of the others, I'm not sure that's the safest bet, especially if you want the dog to be solid and working. This is going to be a needy puppy. I kind of recommend people go with something more middle of the road, especially if they've got some work ahead. But you're saying smaller's better? I'm saying if you have a breed, which you're deciding on, mm-hmm. and we're, we're talking very specifically here for, for dogs which can be used with special needs kids, then generally speaking, the dog which is a bit smaller and less active is going to be a good bet. And you've got to remember that, you know, when you look at the statistics having to do with the dogs which are relinquished to shelters, the four major reasons were our aggression is number one, excessive barking is number two, 
house soiling is number three, and difficult hyperactivity and difficulty to control is number four. Well, that the, the reason a dog is difficult to control is because it's very active and it's so big that you can't control it through its activity. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why you have to be careful when you're picking these. It's like the case that, you know, there is no reason in the world why a, uh, an Irish setter could not be a guide dog, except for the fact that they bounce, and they bounce, and they bounce. Uh, and they glide. They don't walk, they glide. Like Sandra Poodle's Prance, <laughs> yeah. uh, Irish setters float down the runway. They're runway models every minute of every day. How's my hair? Yeah. No. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, and is there a bird in the sky? Yeah, I'm sorry, Mr. Blind Man. I saw a bird. Excuse me for a moment. You don't mind, right? Yeah, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so you know, it, it's not that they're lacking in intelligence and work ethic or that sort of thing. It's just, you know, they're, they're bigger, active, strong dogs. And uh, so, it's, it, you know. Wait a minute. While we're on the Irish Setter topic, I want you to dispel this myth or shed some light anyway. People think Irish Setters are stupid, okay? And they think they're stupid because they think, and I'm, I'm not, okay, I'm not making this up. This is what people tell me. They think that their brain is rubbing against their skull. And that's why Irish setters are stupid, because their heads are too small. Can you help me out on this one? Don't tell me you haven't heard this, because I hear this all the time. Well, first of all, field <laughs> Irish setters do not have the narrow head. But the people tend to think that, <laughs> that, Irish, set, that the Irish setters are stupid is because they are difficult to train in the early stages. And the reason for this is they're, they're very, very active, and they have an extended puppyhood. You know, I always... I agree people, with that. Yeah. But, They're very but, silly for a long time. That's, well, I always tell people that the breeder will give you your dog at the uh, agreed-upon time, but you just got to remember that the brain is back-ordered by uh, <laughs> 18 to 24 months because that, they do have... You don't get the brain so later. Oh, that's funny. You get the body of the puppy. The brain comes uh, later. <laughs> um, you know, they do have this extended puppyhood, but you got to remember that, that if you get an Irish setter, by the time the dog is four or five, you're going to be writing poems about it. I mean, they turn into these absolutely yeah, marvelous dogs, but you have to survive their puppyhood. And okay, so explain, explain this one to me. I knew an Irish setter when I was a kid. Its name was Rusty. Yeah, okay. A girl Irish setter, female, owned by a lovely family, lots of kids. They'd always had dogs, had dogs after too. This dog used to come down their winding staircase and run right into the wall. But not once. Pretty much every time the doorbell rang. Doorbell would ring, and it did this once as a puppy, possibly by accident, but it almost seemed on purpose. It would come running down the stairs and run right into the wall. You almost felt bad ringing the doorway, you know, because, oh my God, she's going to go thump. You'd hear her. Smash. And then she'd come greet you a little bit dazed. So what was going on with that? What was going on with that is that the dog... Dogs really don't think about the future. They think about the present. So the doorbell goes, and <laughs> they hit the gas pedal, and now they're flying down the steps, and their brakes are just not as good as their gas pedal. So that's what you're dealing with. It was like a cartoon, but as she got older, you felt really bad for her, you know? <laughs> Didn't want to make her hit her head. Oh, poor Rusty. Yeah. Well, they were burgled once. And Rusty did not protect the house. Rusty was let out and she was roaming the neighborhood. So what do you find with that? I get people asking me that all the time. Will the standard poodle puppy I'm buying from you protect the house? And I say yes, and it will bark. It will definitely bark if someone tries to do harm to you. But um, are there some breeds that just won't? 
Yeah, I mean, you have to remember there are two, you know, if you want to protect the house kind of a thing, there are two kinds of dogs which you have. You have watchdogs, which sound the alarm, and guard dogs, which actually physically guard you. And poodles are, in fact, watchdogs. I mean, they will sound the alarm, but they won't physically protect you. And a chihuahua can be a watchdog. I mean, you know, it would sound the alarm. So a guard dog, so a dog which is actually going to guard you, is, is uh, much more like our working dogs. You know, it'll be something like a boxer or a German Shepherd or a Great Dane or something like that. You know, the dogs, you know, a Doberman is sort of the perfect guard dog uh, kind of a thing. But watchdogs come in all varieties. I mean... Well, you know what, I, I want to ask you, because we're veering off topic, and I know I did that, but for special needs, what are the breeds? Can well, you get a dog to help your kid that will also protect your house? Or is that not a possibility? I don't think that's a possibility. You can't um, get a standard poodle, so an alarm dog that will also be a well, good, like a, a, standard, a hybrid a standard, sort of? Yeah, a, a standard poodle, you know, can be a watchdog, but they are not reliable watchdogs. You know, that's, right. not, that's not their thing. They don't have a territoriality. They don't have a good watchdog guard dog is very territorial and is basically not highly sociable akita's uh, you're talking uh, the ultimate right and akita you know, is sort of the archetype and that would not make a good service dog because there's no way it's going to be tied to your kid and walk through a busy schoolyard and be happy about it that's right and and mm. you know the same thing goes with dobermans are a great example of that german shepherds are an example of that you know they are wonderful bright dogs, uh, you know, good working dogs and that sort of thing, but they're not kissy-faced and they're not going to provide necessarily that uh, emotional support that the child needs. Well, we're going to take a break here and when we get back, I want to ask Dr. Corin if a family's out there with an autistic kid or special needs kid and they're thinking of getting a dog for the kid, what if they already have a dog or what if they want a dog that's for the other kids or that guards the house or, have, you know, maybe they, they just have a different set of needs, a pocket dog. Can they have two dogs and have a working dog and still make this happen? Okay, stay tuned to Animal Party on Pet Life Radio with Deb Wolf. We'll be back in a second. Don't go anywhere because the best is yet to come. Stick around. Dogs leave fur wherever they go. It collects all over the home. There are many tools designed to stop dog hair spreading, but their effectiveness varies, and afterwards you have to clean the tool, then the floor. With the Dyson Groom Tool, you simply deploy the bristles, then gently brush the coat. Loose fur is removed, while dead skin and allergens are captured by the vacuum. And to clean up, you simply release the trigger. To get this awesome Dyson Groom Tool, go to DysonDeals.com. That's DysonDeals.com. Hi, this is Marcy Davis and my service dog, Whistle. And we're your hosts of Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Working Like Dogs is the show where you can learn everything you ever wanted to know about working animals or working dogs. Whether you're a member of a working dog team or you've just seen a working dog or animal out at the mall or the grocery store and you're curious about how these amazing animals work with their human partners, then Working Like Dogs is the show for you. Join us for the inside scoop at Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. <laughs> 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 
for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, evolution wants us to have these things be varied because, you know, you want some people who are going to be caretakers and some people who are going to be leaders and some people who are going to be fighters and some people who are going to be conscientious workers and that kind of a thing. Yeah, and the guy who stays up all night to watch the village. Well, that's not the person who's really mellow. It's not. Well, you know? and but the whole idea is finding a match for the person's personality and the situation which they find themselves in. So, for example, the guy who is going to excel as a linebacker um, in a football game uh, might not be the person who you want to um, be a caretaker in a nursery school. <laughs> There's a different set of traits involved in this. It just seems like this whole, you know, that they're trying to fit these kids into this, like, square peg type round hole. And when they don't fit, it just seems so quick. Some of the kids I've seen diagnosed this way, I mean, they definitely seem different. But it just, the idea that they're not normal and the other kids are normal and there's something wrong with them, I see they're hard to manage and difficult because they never stop, some of them. And I'm talking about the ADHD kids. But... But they're so gifted when they're not on meds. They're so interesting. And, you know, if you can give them energetic learning, they're really quite manageable, I've found. So, and not always, not every kid, but it just seems to me there's got to be a whole whack of them being misdiagnosed just because they're hard to handle. Well, I think that the ADHD diagnosis is being overused uh, nowadays. Any kid who acts out in class for any reason, you know, is apt to get the tag that this is, you know, a kid with uh, a problem. And in fact, medication might be, you know, prescribed. But the tag is them having a problem is usually from the individual who has to control them, who has to, you know, have them in class, who just really wants an easier, more tractable class of full of kids. I mean, you know, I'm sure that if we were dealing out these diagnoses in the same way that we are today, that when I was a kid in, in grade school, you know, I probably would have been tagged by it because, you know, I was very, very uh, active and partly because I was very, very bored. I mean, they were trying to teach me reading in first grade and I was already reading at a fifth grade level and, you know. <laughs> I have a similar history and being, you know, labeled as hyper. I didn't have the ADD part, just the hyper part. But being hyper meant in university, I could do such long hours, I could cram like nobody else. Being hyper meant good things for me in my life. And, you know, Ritalin wouldn't have helped me out that way at all. So I really caution people if they're listening to the show and they think medicine is the only answer. Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't, right? There's got to research it all the way. I still don't quite understand why dogs are such a good match for these specific kids, kids with autism or on the autism spectrum. You know, is it a, a duty the dog has or does the dog, like the seeing eye dog, become so invested in the person that it sympathetically cares for them out of love and caring? Or is it a duty? Is it just doing its job? Oh, no, no, no. If there's not an emotional bond, it's not going to work. You know, it's not the dog wakes up and says, well, I'm not in the mood, but I've got to be empathetic today. Uh, it doesn't work that way. There has to be a bond. Without that bond, you're not going to have a decent therapy dog. And that's one of the reasons, for example, that uh, in cases where you're getting service dogs of various types, like hearing assistance dogs or guide dogs for the blind or that sort of thing, before that dog is turned over to a, a person, they are brought in and will often spend a week to three weeks, you know, bonding with a dog uh, under the supervision of the people who had been training the dog previously. And that's vital because if the dog doesn't have that bond, if you're not suddenly the focus of that dog's existence, uh, they're just not going to do the work. 
And remember, in dog, in, in cases where we're dealing with autistic kids or we're dealing with kids with stress-related problems or adults with stress-related problems, I mean, you know, there's a, a huge research project which has been funded by uh, the U.S. Congress on um, the uh, effectiveness of, of dogs. On soldiers? Who, yep, that's right. We're coming back with post-traumatic stress syndrome. For that to work, that dog has to be bonded to that particular individual. In many respects, certainly with, when you're dealing with, with these dogs involved in animal-assisted uh, psychological therapy, it is in fact the emotional support which the dog is providing, which is a key component in the whole game. So the, so the dog must be bonded. It's not the fact that we are going to hire you and you are going to be a therapist. What? Okay, so we're kind of coming to the end of the interview, and I definitely want to have you back on because there's more topics I want to ask you about. And maybe we'll even touch on uh, soldiers and PTSD and how, how the dogs, you know, interrupt their nightmares and go circle them in crowds and help them see that when they're having flashbacks. If the dog's calm, then obviously things are okay. They're mistaken, that sort of thing. So we'll talk about that maybe on a future show. But because I know a lot of people are going to be listening to this show, people with autism in their lives, I wanted to ask you, what are the good breeds and how can they get a dog like this? Are there any, is there any funding available? And what, if they're going to go out and buy privately, can they train it themselves? Where would they go? We've got listeners all over the world with special needs kids who need to know what to do about this. Well, there are a number of organizations which are training dogs for these for specific conditions and specific syndromes. Generally speaking, the dogs of choice seem to be nowadays labs and goldens. You know, can you train them yourselves? I think that there are some programs which have appeared in print which talk about how you train and assist these dogs for these sorts of things. If you want to have a dog who is going to be not from one of the training agencies, you just really have to emphasize that that dog must be very sociable and must be well bonded to the patient. I say bomb proof. You want the puppy that's not afraid of anything, that doesn't right. startle easily, that isn't isn't um, causing mischief, but isn't fearful and lingering behind either. The puppy that's just easygoing, laid back, you know, pills can drop on the floor and it's not going to swallow them in a second. Stuff like that. Yeah, you want this sort of completely socialized dog. And the thing about, as you said, you know, if pills are dropped on the floor, the dog doesn't go for it. That's one of the reasons why you want that slightly less active dog. <laughs> yeah, gives you a and, and a compassionate dog, a dog who's really bonded to the people. So if you're touring at a breeding site and you see these puppies and one is following the people around, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, so, it, or it, whining it's, at the gate to go in the house. That might be the one. <laughs> yeah. It's really the, the sociability of the dogs. I mean, there are some psychologists who feel that the one of the major things which psychotherapy provides you with is a good, safe friend who you can talk to. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and that is, is in the form of your therapist. So, you know, the dog is basically going to be that sort of good, safe friend. The other thing I wanted to say is wherever you are in the world, if there is a seeing eye dog program, you can contact them because sometimes the dogs that don't quite make it get retrained for this and sometimes it's subsidized. So you may find there's a free dog out there for you if you get your name on a list. But these Goldens and Labs, so now what if someone goes to the local shelter and sees a lab cross or a golden cross, some kind of mutt, looks mostly golden, looks mostly lab, has the padded feet and the round soft mouth. It's a golden, it's a lab, a cross. And it's social and it's loving and it's all over them. Is that a good pick? 
I mean, it can be. It's much riskier. Remember, when you're right. getting a dog from a shelter, you might be inheriting somebody else's problems. You might. I, I think that, you know, if people are thinking about this sort of thing, there are a number of organizations which provide information. One of the best ones is the Delta Society. You know, you can contact them. I think that they've even got some publications about assistance dogs and therapy dogs, or they can certainly direct you toward someone who has that information. So I would give a shot with them. They're, you know, a highly responsible, you know, nonprofit group, which does some wonderful work. You know, next time you come on, I want to ask you sort of related things. I want to ask you, I find it amazing, and I bet other people do too, that dogs can detect cancer or that they can tell if you've just had a heart attack or that a dog on Vancouver Island woke up the kid in the family who was diabetic because her sugar levels had dropped and he wasn't even, or the dog was a she, she wasn't even trained, the dog. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to know how that happened. So will you come on the show in the future and talk about some more of these psychological, animal-related topics? You know, I'll even talk about the dog which has been trained to detect C. difficile, which is one of those superbugs in hospitals. Oh, wow. I heard they were using dogs. I actually, someone tried to hire me to train dogs to find bed bugs. But I'm so oh, sweet. Yes, yeah, yeah. I didn't the, the, want the bed bugs in their little petri. I didn't want anything to do with any of it. I'm just too squeamish. But yeah, oh, what a good use. That's amazing. The, the, the Hilton Hotel Corporation has a beagle which does that, which goes from hotel to hotel. Nice. Okay, yeah. so before we go, because we have to wrap it up, I'll have you back really soon, Dr. Gorn. Can you tell everybody what your latest book is before we go? The uh, latest book is called The Wisdom of Dogs. The Wisdom of Dogs. See, and now there's a whole topic right there. People say dogs are like a three-year-old kid or a six-year-old kid and cats are like a four-year-old kid, but they're so much more wise than even the wisest humans in some ways. So how can you say that? How can you say that? Their judgment calls, their ability to read situations and danger, their capacity to be in the moment no matter what. I mean, they're like zen compared to the rest of us. You know, they're way ahead. And Well, that's, that's a whole other show, my love. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> What's the wisdom of dogs about? Let's give people a bit of a teaser. Can you uh, tease the them wi- just a little? The Wisdom of Dogs is a little book which really has to do with our relationship to dogs and what dogs are capable of and what we think about them and it's done much more much lighter tone than most of my other books it's designed to be a really fun read but it contains a bunch of information about a variety of topics about dogs a couple of historical things and it's one of the books in which I've done all the drawings and so I think that they're relatively good drawings Oh, right on. Yeah, some of your books are very academic. I sit there with a pen and paper taking notes and highlighting, you know. But, um, like, Intelligence of Dogs is like that for me. There's just so much in it, I don't want to miss anything. And I've got all these folded, you know, you would hate to see Mm -hmm. it. It's all folded and dog-eared and, you know, appropriately. But this one sounds like a nice light read. Good summer read for the beach, maybe. If you're going to the beach with your dog, take shade, take water. Feel it first so it's not too hot on his paws. And uh, sunscreen if you've got freckles or pink spots. Well, I think we've run out of time, Dr. Corin. All right. Well, it was fun talking to you, Deb. It always is. Yes. Well, thank you, Stan. I hope to talk again soon. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. On Pet Life Radio, it's been Deborah Wolf, Animal Party, and Stan Corin, my friend from the dog tour 20 years back. We used to go traveling town to town with our dogs and our books and our merchandise, and we'd have tents 
and we'd be side by side and we'd each watch each other's booths so we could go have lunch or take our dogs for a bathroom break. So that's how we first met a long, long time ago. And he's been writing books ever since and coming to the show to enlighten us on topics that are sometimes hard to get the real information on. So thank you for listening today. And if you do have autism in your family and you want a pet, go to the Delta Society because they've got great resources for you and you can find everything you need from there. So until next time, be good to your animals. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.